Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Joe Siemens. We recorded this at the house of future guests of the show, W.B. Reed and Bonnie Zano in Seattle. Thanks so much for hosting us. I'm going to remind you real quick that there are Get Up in the Cool shirts available, and then I'll shut up about it for a while. Check out the link in the show notes and rep your favorite all-time podcast at your next festival. Make sure to stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with this week's guest. But first, here's my interview and jam with Joe Siemens. Enjoy. All right. This is Timberbound. One, two, three, four. Every living creature is a part of what it seems But awake here in the morning is a child of last night's dream As a sapling has been twisted so this tree's been turned around As I live it and breathe and sing here this poor boy been timber bound I've been snow bound, I've been water bound, I've been bound to travel too Find it in the bands of love and love that a time or two I've been bonded to the firmament, I've been bound to love the blues Swear to God, my friends, there's times I've been timber bound like you There seems to be a gap, so I won't go into here I know there was a sunrise or two was in the air But I carry still the name, my bore some few that I was called Prayed at night a child of mine might bear no name at all I've been snowbound, I've been waterbound, I've been bound to travels too. Find it in the bands of love and loved it a time or two. I've been bonded to the firmament, I've been bound to love the blues. Swear to God, my friends, it's times I've been timber bound like you. I lived on Felon Baker, Lord, I love that slender town. Seemed to me the misty past, I took the long way around. Seen the circle squared in cedar, saw the saw go spiraling round. So I waited by the carriage with my mind on timber bound. I've been snowbound, I've been waterbound, I've been bound to travel too. Find it in the bands of love and loved it a time or two. I've been bonded to the firmament, I've been bound to love the blues. Swear to God, my friends, there's times I've been timber bound like you. And I did not have a tool I doubt my life from hand to hand in a hop showed as a rule Well, I've spoken to musicians Should I listen to the blues? The board is down without a song The board is paying some dues 
I've been snowbound, I've been waterbound, I've been bound to travel too. Find it in the bands of love and loved it a time or two. I've been bonded to the firmament, I've been bound to love the blues. Swear to God, my friends, it's time to been bound like you. Yeah, I've been bonded to the firmament, I've been bound to love the blues. Swear to God, my friends, it's times I've been timber bound like you. <laughs> Joe Siemens, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Thank you very much, Cameron. It's great to be here. Boy, you got me on the ropes today. I'm fiddling for, I think, the first time on the show, and we have no determined set list, and I feel <laughs> totally comfortable. And, <laughs> and, that's great. Yeah, that's great. So then that's, you're, yeah, yeah. you're getting an authentic experience of what it's like to play music with me then. You got good no vibes, and it's <laughs> helping me through uh, my time of need <laughs> okay, playing with good. you. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be here. So I first heard about you uh from this video that was going around with you playing with Ben Hunter, mm -hmm. you were playing banjo, and he was playing the Bones, I believe. And I don't remember the name of the song. It's probably Sinner Man. It was that. It was Sinner Man. And people were sharing it around and going like, damn, this is, this is it. <laughs> it was really good. It was a very, uh, it was it was very good and very charismatic and, and dramatic. And, and then I noticed um, that you kept popping up. Uh, from all of these shares from the uh, Afrolatchian on time gathering oh, yeah. page, and I was like, you know, ninety nine percent of the posts are featuring uh, fantastic Black Roots artists, mm -hmm. but this white guy keeps showing. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's this guy <laughs> who's been adopted in? <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'm very curious about this man. Uh, that's yeah, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, I guess I, well, I'm like you, I'm from Oregon. Yeah. And so we grew represent. up. We can represent. <laughs> and so except for a small pocket um, of folks that were out in Maxville, Oregon in the 20s and the folks that lived in North Portland and lived in Vanport before it flooded in the 40s, uh, Oregon is, there. there is not any black culture where we come from, you know? Yeah, it's, I guess by design. By design. Yeah. Uh, Oregon is missing too much of, of, of the African component of American culture. And I mean, I grew up not, not very much in old time. My parents played, or my parents didn't play, but their friends played. And that's how I heard the music. Like they would take me to square dances and stuff. Hmm. And, and, but I was like drawn, like I loved NBA basketball, which I still do. And I like, that was like in popular culture, like the rap music that was on the radio, that was my only exposure to black culture. And, and me as well. <laughs> yeah, me not, as not, well. I mean, you grew up in Oregon in the '90s. That's yeah. all that. That's all that we knew in terms of that part of our culture. But so then it gets exoticized in a weird way. But anyhow, so I, I just got interested because I got into Bob Dylan when I was like in my teens, yeah. and then I, and then through Bob Dylan, I was led to Woody Guthrie and was led to all of the amazing blues musicians who are. Yes foundationally important to Bob Dylan's work, which yeah. not a lot of people know, but Michael Gray wrote a book like that thick that like documents like all of the blues verses that are quoted in, you know, uh, modified in Dylan's work. And so I was just like went all the way down the rabbit hole from that direction and found myself like really fascinated by like that part of American culture. Yeah. And so then I met Ben Hunter when I was probably 25 or 26 so almost 10 years ago now and uh, 
and that and that was an opportunity to like okay well like where's Ben coming from and we were we both went to the Port Townsend Acoustic Blues Festival okay which I had only, I I went to I don't know it was like 2012 2013 or something like that and I realized like oh there are still people that know how to play Charlie Patton's guitar style. Yeah. There people still exist who can render like a, a, a credible version of Blind Blake. Like this is amazing. Cuz to you it had been just all sort of like historical and theoretical like Yeah. yeah. It'd been like I'd been reading the lyrics, yeah. I'd been listening to the amazing recordings, but not understanding that it was a living tradition. Yeah. And so exciting. Yeah, super exciting. <laughs> And then, so then Ben and I were at that festival and our friend Lauren Sheehan said, well, you know, what you guys have is cool because you can just do things as a duo. And we were like, oh yeah, a duo. And we started <laughs> doing things as a duo. And we came back to the next year and we were playing our version of Blind Willie McTell uh, doing the Broke Down Engine Blues. Hmm. We played it like at the participants concert, you know, just like we had scholarships. We're just there studying the music. Yeah. And Dom Fleming saw us playing. And this is about the time that, the, that he was leaving the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Yeah. And he reached out to Ben a few months later and said, hey, I'm starting my own project. I'd like you and Joe to back me up as my, like, trio. And we were like, whoa. Okay. You know? And so we so we did that for a while. You were like, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. Not, yeah. yeah, I'll look in. Yeah, I'll be calm about this. <laughs> um, you know, he had just won a Grammy at that time. Yeah. Like, it was just crazy. It was like a lightning bolt. And so yeah. th- so, so, Music Maker Relief Foundation, which is like the, the music label that Dom was still on, um, they started flying us out there, and we recorded some songs with him for his album Prospect Hill, and th- and then this things like kept happening, like that. And Ben and I just like decided like, well, we need to go and f- and like we're listening to all these recordings. We're encountering some of these folks up in the Northwest, but we need to like go where the music that we're interpreting came from. So we went, we we got, we did a little GoFundMe, and we did a trip along the Mississippi River, and and like tried to just seek out people, tradition bears. Yeah. And and then that led me into just like getting more and more familiar. I mean, when you travel in the South, you learn a lot of things about American culture you don't understand in Oregon. So it was a fruitful trip. Yeah, it was a fruitful trip. And yeah. we did it a couple of times. And then we ended up winning the International Blues Challenge, right. which is like a thing that we didn't know existed. But the Blues Foundation is like a nonprofit that brings in people from all over the world. And they compete and they're like judged by judges and so we won that in like 2016. And so it's just been like, I think because I have a connection to the music of Timberbound, like I have a, I have a connection to the music where I came from and there's not a lot of, there's not any equivalence as far as like where blues music came from, but there's parallels. Yeah. Like where I come from, there's loggers. There's a whole lot of logging that happened there. Still happens to a degree, but not in the same context. And, um, and so some of the music, like the song we just played, like that comes out of people who worked in sawmills. You know, that's John Cunnick's song. He wrote the lyrics and his, his wife, Kim, wrote the melody to Timberbound and they wrote a whole batch of songs. And the song says, I've been bound to love the blues. Yeah. And just as we were playing it today, I was thinking like, wow, that's definitely a, a line written by a white man because, you know, you don't love the blues. The blues right. are something you <laughs> sing yeah. to relieve the feeling sure. of the blues yeah you know uh the the act of singing the blues is to is to express what's troubling you and it's just, so it can't it, it's thought of as a sad music it's really a transcendent music right it's yeah. this music su- sung to transcend your troubles and in that way that's a similar thing to like you know the music we play in rural oregon is like music you play to cut loose it's like let's yes. have a party let's let's like we're i got some feelings i'm gonna work yeah. them out you know and so there are parallels to to black culture, but I guess 
So I got sucked in. So to go back to like your question, like why does this white dude keep popping up? Yeah. I think it's because <laughs> I'm 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 very humble in knowing what I am and what I am not. Important. Important. <laughs> and always acknowledging like, well, I'm going to play a blues for you, but it's not, you know, it's it's from American culture, which I am also, but it's from black American culture, which I am not yes. from in any way. And so I think that my my black friends and, and some of the people of color that I like, you know, have become buddies with, they recognize that I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. Yeah. And I think that's been that's been like helpful to me in, in like getting plugged into that scene and just being like wow look at all there's like a really an upsurge because when I first went to the Blues Festival in Port Townsend it was like man it seems like the people doing this music are kind of dying out they're like mm. older and and kind of on the way out but then it wasn't just the Carolina Chocolate Drops all of a sudden there's Ben Hunter and there's and there's um, Justin Golden, who's a songwriter in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. There's Andrew Ali in Richmond. There's John Tavius Willis. Yes. There's Deron Paxton. <laughs> yes. There's just like all of these brilliant musicians who are carrying it on. And, and I just listed a bunch of dudes, but there's a there's a bunch of female artists as well. We were talking about Ian earlier. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, everybody knows about Rhiannon, of course. Not a lot of people know about my partner, Tina, who performs as Briar. Not a lot of people know about um, Sarah Gambrichel, who's a... Who's yes. a brilliant songwriter and artist in dc our friend yaya yaya patterson she's an amazing singer so i've met all these people through that scene and it's just like wow there's a whole nother generation that's t picking this up and carrying it forward so that's kind of what has sucked me into it i just love the music yeah well <laughs> what should what should we play next that that in mind um with that in mind we should probably play um well we should play woody guthrie Great. Yeah. Apropos, yeah. Because we're gonna play a version we're gonna play Woody's rewrite of Pretty Polly. That's a rewrite of Pretty Polly. I that makes sense. I was like, this sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and which is a banjo tune. Yeah. Uh but you know, Woody Guthrie of course does it on guitar. But so so we're gonna do Pastures of Plenty, but nobody ever notices that Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty Polly, pretty Polly, yeah. come and go along with me. Yeah. That's what it is. But it's so well rewritten that you don't never notice that. Right. That's yeah. the that's the sign of a great folk song, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think I'm there. Yeah, ready ready when you are. Pash is plenty. It's a mighty hard road that my poor hand is home. My poor feet have traveled one hot dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we roll And your deserts were hot and your mountains they're cold I worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes Slept on the ground in the light of your moon Strawberries, cherries, and apples the best in that sunshiny land, the Pacific Northwest. We traveled with the wind and the rain in our face. Our families migrate from place unto place. I worked in your beet fields till sundown tonight. Travel three hundred miles before the morning gets light. Home loving mothers and strong hearted men 
every state in this union with migrants have been on the edge of your cities you see us men we've come with the dust and we're gone with the wind time when that song wasn't important but sure does feel important now yeah it really is important now yeah. yeah and i had the great good fortune to go to the woody guthrie archives when they were still in new york and i was trying to find everything i could from when he was in oregon in uh in 1941 and so there's a version of those lyrics his first draft it looks like you know he didn't write the dates or anything on almost all the drafts but it's like eight or ten verses long wow. as opposed to the five that he recorded and so it's just like so i sing some of that stuff from that manuscript because it's beautiful you know like he sings about we travel with the wind and the rain in our face and our families migrate from place unto place yeah it just paints a much bigger picture yeah and also goes back to the like don't forget who created this country or who built what the wealth of this country yeah. and who's sustaining it right still. and who's yeah. still sustaining it right yeah exactly yeah, wow. that's that's a potent song. It's just it gets me every time. Yeah. Hmm. Woody. <laughs> that's why that's why we that's why the hat's always off to Woody. Yeah. And of course one of his biggest influences was Lead Belly. Right? That was the that like Woody thought a lot of himself, but the person that he looked <laughs> he looked up to and always like could bow down to was was Lead Belly. He thought he thought that that man was the ultimate and he was right, of course. Mm. Um as a as a folk musician, as a culture bearer, nobody could beat him. Um, and that's and that's where like three of the songs from the Columbia River Collection are all versions of Goodnight Irene. <laughs> you know, he just rewrote the lyrics again and again in different permutations. So, you know, all these like labels for genres and traditions mm-hmm. are kind of fraught to talk about. Like where where do you uh, see yourself? Because we're going to like do an old time like fiddle tune in, yeah. in a minute here, too. So <laughs> eventually, like, yeah. Uh, so event like yeah you're you're 
you're playing this like kind of across some lines, and I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you have any perspective on what do those genre labels mean? To what extent are they helpful? Yeah. To what extent are they hurtful? And right. like, you know, just before we we started, we were talking about having imposter syndrome about totally. It's something I feel all the time as a Pacific yeah Northwesterner and right. feeling like I'm part of a, a people that came from somewhere else. And yeah. I don't necessarily know what's happening here. And, right, right. Yeah. Our families, I mean, my family's been on the, on the land in, in the Pacific Northwest for five generations. And it's still, you know, compared to the indigenous folks, that's brand new. Yes. Compared to somebody in Appalachia, that's brand new. Yes. Right? That's just not very long. And that's part of it. But, yeah, the imposter syndrome is real. And I've come to learn that people all over the country feel it. And that's part of the weakness in our culture, but especially out here, because we're not from the deep south, we're not from Appalachia, those are the places, those are the iconic places that American music comes from, I think. And yes. so it doesn't have the same, yeah, it, it, but I think I think to go to your question about the genres and the labels, like, we have to remember that the genres were something that was created to sell the music, uh-huh. not to help understand the music. Okay. Right? And that's, I think that's the first thing to recall, is that, before, you know, when you asked, when you, when you would ask... Uh, somebody in the 1800s like who's playing a dance like what what style of music you're playing and they would be like music or maybe dance music yes <laughs> you know like yes. that's that's about as genre as like the music has a function and yeah. i think we're better served in understanding its function by its function than its label hmm. the labels are used to sell it the function is what it actually does for right. people you know that's what i've come to think about that but i mean also i think inherent in your question is like we are we are white dudes trying to find our place in this music in 2020 and there's a lot of space that needs to be made right now for people of color to like to to have their their indelible contributions recognized in it yes speak to that what do we need to do um well from your perspective and from the perspective of the uh the black folks that you've been hanging out with like what needs to happen yeah, well, definitely I I have learned to be very careful to not speak for any of the of the people that I associate with, but I will say that I've learned for myself that the, well there are there are layers of things that we need to do. The first layer I think is acknowledgement. Is just this is where this is where the banjo comes from. This is who developed the style of banjo playing that we call claw hammer or frailing. Yes. You know, uh, that's that's pretty fundamental. Then we need to make sure that everybody knows that minstrelsy was a thing, and and happened, and is still like reverberating as an impact, uh, is, is impacting our culture to this day. Yes, because people just don't even know that that exists. Yeah. Um. So so a lot of historical just groundwork needs to be laid. Um. And then, then it that's that's the easy parts. Right. Just <laughs> right. The, yeah. Then, then what do you do about then all what that do you knowledge? Do, right. Yeah. yeah. What do you do about all that knowledge? And so I think that you t- like first of all, we talk to our people. We talk in our communities. We we make sure that that in whatever our little neck of the woods is, and what what communities that we intersect with, just with our interests. If you're passionate about basket weaving or engineering or what have you, issues of social justice intersect those those fields. Yeah. Whether you're queer, whether you're black and or brown whether you're a, a woman like th- those people have have been stepped on since we were a country one way or another and so th- there are there's an impact a positive impact that you can have and don't, don't just like go in waving your sword and be like listen everybody we gotta <laughs> recognize this like you have to be strategic by how you present that sure and, and that's what i'm working on with the rhapsody project is developing 
two things. First, like a toolkit for cultural sustainability on one side, and then on the other side, like basically a program that is designed to understand these issues through the lens of American music. So how do we how do we use the story of American music to better grasp issues of social justice? Very good. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a tension right now of um, I can only speak to the old time community, but I'm sure that it extends out to other traditions as well mm-hmm. and um, more recent tra- music traditions and mm-hmm. dance and basket weaving or et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But there, there are people who are, are concerned that um, there are those among us who are excited to, like you said, bust on in with like a sword and like and bully everyone. Yeah. And it yeah. sounds like you're sort of trying to do, uh, you're trying to address those concerns um, yeah. and, by making something a little more holistic. What, what does that look like on a yeah, that, day-to-day level at the Rhapsody Project? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm coming from, I live... I live and work in Seattle. I grew up in rural Oregon. And if you're staying within the Pacific Northwest, like boundaries, you couldn't find two more opposite. Like I grew up around people who are fishing and hunting and probably are on the redder side of the spectrum. Sure. And now I live in what's considered, it's not that liberal in practice, but is in thought of as one of the liberal bastions of America, right? Um, Which is Seattle. And so I'm trying to, figure out, you know, the way that I approach those issues is not the same in rural America as it is in in the city, okay? Because the city has a whole bunch of cultures bumping up against each other. Rural America has a whole bunch of cultures, but they don't know it because of whiteness. And by whiteness, I don't mean white skin. I mean the social construct that says, you're not Irish American, you're not Scottish American, you're not Italian American, you're white, Yeah. right? And that's so, th- so that's the work that has to be done yes. in predominantly white communities. Whereas if I'm working with a group of students who are every color of the rainbow and have parents from all over the world, there's a whole nother, like they, they have a very different relationship to American culture. And, okay. and so I can't use the same tools that I'm using in rural America, in urban America. Yeah, because so. maybe, um, maybe that wouldn't be relevant to all of them. Yeah. yeah or what they need... Yeah. The tools that they need. <laughs> totally. Yeah, for their communities. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, also the, the point you make of like, there's there's a lot of people who are just like, man, you know, these people are coming in, in here, like either shaming us or yes. like abusing in some way or just being too kind of radical, you know, and trying to change things too fast. And part of that is racism protecting itself. Sure. Right? Because because our internal bias, like the way it preserves itself in our in our culture is to say... Oh no, that's just that's just too much. You yeah. know, that's 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 one part of it. That's not. I'm not saying that's all of it, but that is part of it. It's just straight up racism, and it's not like personal hatred, racism, like using a, a racial slur. It's systemic racism, protecting yourself. Are are you implying that maybe like r- calling someone racist is uh, not the ultimate slur? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, Joe. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, and then maybe everyone's complicit. In, uh, yeah. in I'm it. proposing that calling a person racist is much less helpful than calling a system racist. Sure. Because that's where, that's what, that racism is really like the personal racism. If a person is racist against other people, we probably just got to wait for that person to die. They're probably not going to change their mind in their lifetime. Mm. What I can do is educate their children sure. better. You know, yeah. um, I, I, you know, I accept that there's a bunch of people who are racist. It's not, 
it, it, it's it's I have it easy. I'm on I'm on the lucky side of the spectrum in that respect because the real racism, like the stuff that keeps people poor or keeps people um, just a lack of opportunity, that that's a that's predominantly affecting um, black and brown communities. You need nothing else than the wealth gap between like look at the the medium income. Yeah, just look at the money. Just look at the money and look at the who's in the prisons. And you, there needs to be no more argument whether or not it's actually a thing <laughs> or who's yeah. actually suffering, right? Yeah, or who like, has I, privilege I, or not. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not interested in arguing with a 50 or 70-year-old person about whether it exists or whether calling someone racist is more. Like, no. It's like, we, I mean, those people I use for, for – I'm not going to say target practice. I use for practice. Like, they're who I practice. How do I have a, a productive conversation about this with? So that when I have the opportunity to talk to their kids, I can have a real yeah. effective like effect on what it is that they are being taught. Hmm. They, they're the ones whose minds are changeable. The older folks, we just have to be patient with them, be loving with them, and and persistent. You know, some of them will come around, some of them won't. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to talk with you a little bit uh, w- without some of these get up in the cool filters off mic. Yeah. That makes me think of one more thing to your question. Please. What do we do? Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that I learned working with a, a project here in Seattle called the Black and Tan Hall is a thing called a white caucus. And this freaks everybody out because what it means is you get in a room with other white people okay. and you talk about all the things that make you uncomfortable to say. Okay. You you take the filters off and you go okay well this this is how this really made me feel interesting don't don't subject people of color to that don't go to people of color and say hey would you teach me about minstrelsy that's not their job that's not their job the information is on the internet the information yeah. is free to anyone you don't need someone to hold your hand you need to go educate yourself right. you know and and we need to talk about what like. Like the things that make me go, oh, like yes. the, those are the things that we need to talk about. But we don't need to subject people who endure it every day because of their skin color. We don't need to subject them to our process. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Some of those assumptions that, you know, I've had mm-hmm. are, um, it's like, I don't even know how to Google this. Like, I feel <laughs> yeah. so fundamentally mm-hmm. under the foot of all of the the things I've been uh, taught yeah. in yeah. the wrong ways, in you know, about identity. And it's like, I don't even know. You know, I mean, usually the best thing is just to listen <laughs> and to, and to yeah. like stew if you have to. And then every once in a while, say something embarrassing to a white friend so that they can be like, hey, <laughs> yeah, don't you go saying that in front of anyone else. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 totally. And yeah, but absolutely. you have like an actual venue for this and, and an event so that it can. Right. Right. Yeah. You just have a like every month. We're like, we're going to we're going to we're, we're going to get together one time and we're going to. We're gonna have a meal, and we're just, and that, like we're gonna have an not an agenda, but we're gonna either have a book or a movie or something. Mm. It's like a, it could be a book group or whatever. But you you have you have a common thing that you've been thinking about, or you read Tanahisi's article on reparations. Sure. And you're just gonna chop it up, yeah. Until like you're too tired to talk anymore, and you're gonna go home, and like wow. you're just gonna do that once a month. Is there any sort of um, accountability for this white caucus from mm. non-white people? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's the accountability comes in the inevitable interactions you're going to have with people of color. You're you're going to, you're going to start to see how you can basically cut things off of the pass so that, because it it affects you a lot less like, or you can take some of the emotional brunt of Hmm. the labor off of them in certain situations. And so the accountability is the, is the feeling of like, oh, 
Like I was able to sit down at this table and this lady was about to grill my black friend about what minstrelsy was. And instead I just told her and I let my friend chime in as they felt like, or get up and leave without any, you know, like, like you just, you just try to intercept it where you can, you know, so that the people who, to whom it's the greatest weight don't have to feel just quite so much of it. You know, that's all we can do is just on the mark, you know, that that's, so, I mean, maybe that is not how we would define accountability, but that's sure, that's but the motivation, I think. I, I guess I, not that, you know, uh, obviously not every uh, uh, person of color is a monolith for their <laughs> their <laughs> yeah. people, you yeah. know, but um, uh, I have heard plenty of different kinds of people say, white people, you need to talk to each other. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, sure. because those conversations, as cringy as they can get, <laughs> it's never going to be as hurtful as those same conversations on, on either side, like happening um, across those lines. Yeah, yeah, and and then and then, but people and now people are going to jump on this and say that, that it's like segregationist or something. Right? Yeah, because what I'm thinking is, oh, you're talking about a white only group. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, like yeah. All of a sudden, everybody's and, like, yeah. oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, hold on. I've I've heard this story before. It did not yes. end well. <laughs> Um, right, exactly. But what we need to understand is this is not something that you're, <laughs> this is not like a secret club. <laughs> it's know? not a water fountain. It's, it's, yeah, it's not a water fountain. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like you know, you, guess what? We have we have gatherings without in, being intentional that are all white people because America is still extremely socially segregated. Like it, it's happening anyways. And That's you know, a great point. And so, so black folks and brown folks should be able to have spaces where they get to be with their people. Like when Black Panther came out, it came out here in Columbia City, and and me and my white friends, we didn't go the first night. You know why? Not because for you. Not for <laughs> yes. you. Just just wait one night. Just let let folks have their movie, and then you go see it whenever you want. You know, like that. Yeah. That's not that's not segregationist. That's just like they need their spaces. We need our spaces because mm-hmm. our we are all in this together, right? We are all in it, but we need to have those times where we have our own. Yeah. Like. That, that both have to happen for healing to happen. You go after the first night, you go in there, you watch Martin Freeman, <laughs> and you watch Smeagol, or whatever his name is, and you watch and listen. <laughs> like, these, this is, these are the characters that we are in this. Yeah, yeah right, right. This, these are the examples. Well, this, is, this is just getting the whole thing inverted. Yeah. Now, it's, now it's, you know, that's, yeah. it's just... It's just that simple. So that that that's like, that's what I've. That's some of the stuff that I've picked up so far, and and it's kind of it's weird because it's incendiary because it makes because it, because racism makes people uncomfortable because it's because it that's again that's it protecting itself. Yeah. It's like you know, you have to just acknowledge. And this is why I'm so glad you had Nick Garris on here. And this is a thing that people don't talk about enough: is movement, dance, like physically, being in touch with yourself and and acknowledging what you're feeling, and not just like shoving that down and like you know like experiencing it through dance or through any form of physical movement. I mean, it could be yoga or anything, but I prefer it be artistic in expression. Like that will also help because if you're in a room and you can feel what, like you're more empathetic to what's going on, you're going to be a better ally. Yeah. You know? So there's a physical aspect to it. You could feel it in your body mm-hmm. when you're feeling empathy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or when you're feeling threatened. Yeah. And right. And you should not just shut, don't just wall that off. Just acknowledge, like, this is what I'm feeling. Dance about it. Because sometimes, yeah, and dance about it <laughs> or sing about it, you know? Yeah. That's what I've learned. There's a lot to chew on, man. <laughs> I this, know. this is all really good. Yeah. 
Thanks. Yeah. For your work but, that you're doing. But then, and I just did this with a student, with a bunch, a group of students last week, and it was like, okay, now it's time to like get up and move. So like now is when we need to play a song because that's how we. That's one of the ways that we process what we're feeling, right? Yeah. And the music has always been a space where that we've created where all of those where these these identities get to fall away for a minute, and it's not like you're the black guy, I'm the white guy. It's like now we're going to be human beings together for a yeah. while. And that's and that's why I think that what Ben and I do when we do Center Man, it's like it's a it's a spiritual, it's a black spiritual rendered by Nina Simone that we adapted to the banjo and the and the bones. And we played it at the Augusta Heritage Center last year. And it was one of the, the most amazing musical experiences I had because we played it and people got in a circle and like dancers were like coming in the middle of a circle and they were dancing like amazingly. And it was like and you could feel things lifting, you know? It was beautiful. Hmm. And so like that was like, ah, this is the function of the music. It's to do this, you know? And that that is why we that is why we should be playing music, is to like acknowledge the stuff, but then like whew, now let's all be humans for a minute, huh? You know? That's that's what I've learned about the old time. <laughs> or what we call old time. Yes. Well what what do you want to do next then? We should do um nail that catfish okay, to a tree. Great. Do you want to do the count off or potatoes so you can choose the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh. tell if you were just like no. and now three more times yeah. or yeah no that's all good that's all good i was like i better stick my foot out i haven't thought of that <laughs> man you're you're right after like having a conversation like that it like all of a sudden this otherwise benign tune right you know this i it's it's a very human tune i'm just a uh, a being trying to um uh, take apart a corpse so that I can eat it. <laughs> you know, it's like it is very grounding to yeah. do that afterwards. Yeah. yeah, 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 and yeah, and that's the thing that you know, which like, is what it feels like for me to play the fiddle. <laughs> to but be, that's great. To I be mean, honest, but I mean, think about it. Like, 
well, two things. The, this music was made by working people, right? Yeah, These yeah, weren't yeah. people who had degrees from Berkeley and were like playing music all day in a practice room. Like yeah. they were working with their hands for many hours, and this is how they would cut loose at the end of it. That is what this music came out of. What you know, whatever their whatever their cultural background was, that is fundamentally the people that developed the music. And so, like you playing the fiddle and it being like a new thing to you, like you you're pl- you're a working person. Your other work happens to be playing music yes. to a large degree, but like this is not like your gig is not playing the fiddle. No, you're doing it. This as is a, how I cut loose. Yeah, you, yeah, you do you cut loose. You do it as a folk musician. That's yeah. that's a beautiful thing. You know, yeah. that's all right. Hmm. But that's that's something that I've made my peace with. You know, as there's like there's people now that play this music on such a ridiculous level, right? It's true. Whether it's Noam Pakelny or it's yes. Rhiannon Giddens or whoever, yeah. right? You're just like, well, they have technique to a degree that I will never have it. Yeah. So. The, but the world needs folk musicians as well as professional musicians, yeah. and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's like another way of going using ourselves with the imposter syndrome thing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> good it's, reminder. It's, the struggle is real. Yeah, yeah, and a and a reminder that you know, like within the the folk those sources as well, there are there are people who were absolute you know, virtuosos and savants, you know, within that too. And, you know, Absolutely. I have to remember that <laughs> yeah. it's not just uh, this dichotomy of, you know, Berkeley and Oberlin and then uh, factory worker, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that, so. no, it's so true. So true. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of spectrums and, and where we land on them is not like totally, is, is totally unpredictable actually, yeah. as it turns out, because there are layers of people, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, like um, who's the who's the fiddler that Bruce Molsky studied with the most? Um, uh, Tommy Gerald, you know. Tommy Gerald is a genius. He's a certain kind of genius. Yes. He's a very particular kind of genius. Yeah. But it's you know just because it's not it's not the genius of Bach does not make it any less. Maybe it sounds a little scratchier, but sure. like yeah. I don't care. I still know a genius when I hear it. You yeah. know, and you can you can get there by being like a a Zen Buddha on a mountaintop of the fiddle, you know, yeah. it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> they, you can meditate in many ways, you know. Yeah. I love that about the music. Will you tell me more about growing up in Oregon and being exposed to this music? Um, who were the people in your community who were playing? And mm-hmm. also, why were your folks taking you to square dances? How did <laughs> how were they exposed to this music? Uh huh. Um, my folks were coming up as teenagers in the 60s and but they were just a little too old to or young to be classified as hippies okay they just were just not quite on that generation they classify themselves as back to the landers okay meaning that they in around 1970 they went out into the woods and built geodesic domes and like my dad says like tried to reinvent the wheel over again like start yeah. like 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 okay i guess and eventually they decided like, oh, I guess in- indoor plumbing is a is a nice thing to have. You know, like they literally, they went all the way back, right? Oh. And they, they were doing that. Um, did you grow up in a geodesic dome? I did not. Okay. But the geodesic dome that my mother built is still being lived in by another woman. Okay. And the geodesic dome my dad built is still rotting back into the forest very picturesquely. Yeah. <laughs> so they're both still there, one form or another. Um, and so I, I grew up about, about 20 miles from where we're talking about in a in a house that my parents built after they moved off of the, what we'll call the commune as a shorthand. And uh, so so my dad was work, like was an engineer, worked in the paper mill. My mom was an architect who quit 
doing that professionally when I was very young to be a mom. And she was she's an artist. And so they both had a great love of music and had a, you know, a record collection of people of teenage like who people who were teenagers in the 60s. I was listening to The Doors and The Beatles yeah. and Bob Dylan and Stevie Wonder and, you know, like all that great music. Um, okay, I don't think The Doors are great. They're a good rock band, but that's beside the point. So that that was like I was getting it through their record collection, but they had all these friends from their what we'll call their hippie days. The other back to the Landers. And one of them was named Hobie Kiter. And Hobie Kiter is a banjo player and a guitar player and a songwriter. And he plays old-time music out in Astoria. He was raised mostly in Portland. And he is like one of these people who's a walking encyclopedia of the of the working history of the Northwest over the past 150 years. Sounds like someone I should have on the show. Yeah, you okay, should. You great. should. He will have... He will have he has amazing stories and knows so much about the history along the Columbia River in the in the 1900s and the late 1800s. And so Hobie, Hobie and his friend Dave Berge played music together. They had a duo, just went by their names, and they made one album. It's called Dog Salmon and Rutabagas. And Dog Salmon and Rutabagas was recorded when I was two years old. And, and for the title track they had, everybody came into the studio to sing the chorus together. Mm. And so I was a babe in arms and they couldn't get anybody to take care of me while they did this. So they did it with me in the studio. Yeah. And so on the track, you can hear me crying Great. in between. <laughs> um, and so like I was I was hearing it like you know, they would there would be parties out at Kesey, which is like the end of the route where they left behind all the old loggers cabins outside of Vernonia, Oregon. And so out at Kesey, they would have a cider pressing party in the fall. And so my parents would take me out there and I would go there and Hobie and Dave would be playing music around the around the fire at the cider pressing and Maybell would be playing uh she'd be playing the auto harp not mother Maybell but named, yeah. <laughs> named after mother Maybell uh she, May, mm. May Thompson who is like one of my dad's old girlfriends and is now like just a you know like might as well be my aunt cool um so like these people were just super legit old time musicians as far as you can go that way in Oregon sure in you know insert imposter syndrome here yes um but for Oregon, that's what that's what qualifies as old time sure. music, they, you know. And so that was that was what was in the air. And when I got interested in it, I was about seventeen or eighteen, and had gone through like understanding like the significance of folk music and realizing, oh, like the Hobie and Dave songs are really good. <laughs> I need to talk to Hobie, and I talked to Hobie like, well, what else is there of like Northwest folk music? Because I don't want to, I want to know the music from my place. And he gave me the Timberbound songbook, which is like this songbook composed by John and Kim Cunnick. We played, we played this title song in the beginning of the show. That is, that is something that was published in the 1970s around the time my parents met. And so that music was being played. Like that is to me like a recent vintage Northwest folk music yeah. because people are doing different versions of Timberbound in different communities around that area. It's like a new folk tradition. Um, and so that's... That's like, and so, and then, so there'd be cider pressings, there'd be square dances and my parents like music and they, one of them, they can't agree where they met, but one of them thinks they met at a square dance. Okay. <laughs> and so they would take, you know, we'd go to square dances when I was a kid and I thought it was, I, I, I did no interest in it then. I was interested in basketball and football and yes. soccer and like I was in sports in Rainier. That was like, that was most of my identity then. But then slowly I got alienated from like that culture and got sucked into like the, the music culture. Hmm. As I, you know, became like an angsty teenager. Yes, <laughs> and that's and and then that, that that brought us to here. Yeah. <laughs> that, that has led me <laughs> down the garden path, as they say. This is relatable to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I quit the wrestling team mid-season so that I could audition for the musical. <laughs> My freshman year. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yep, yep. And it was because... It was so alienating and so stressful, and it wasn't actually, it was amplifying my teenage anxiety totally. as opposed to actually being an outlet for it. Right. It works for some people, obviously, but. I distinctly remember being 16 years old and just putting the basketball down on the court and being like, well, I'm done with this. I just want to play guitar now. And I yeah. just started playing guitar every day. Like, that, that was it. Like, literally just turned the light switch off. Yeah. You know, like, that, I was done. I was done with sports. Yeah. Um, I didn't play sports again until I was like, I was a senior in college and needed to get my PE credit. (laughs) (laughs) That's just how it happened. Um, So one of the songs on Hobie and Dave's album is this really interesting song called Oregon Again, which is about fishing on the boats. Good title. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so Hobie was in a cafe. I think it was like in, uh, it was down south of Seaside, one of those little communities. And he's in a cafe. And next table over, the couple is having a rather loud disagreement. The the gentleman is saying to his wife, well, it's great. I've found another way. I don't have to be on the boats all the time. I can be home a lot more often. And his wife wasn't so pleased about that. Yeah, she said, no, yeah. I'd just assume you just stayed out, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it did, did not end well. But yeah. so then Hobie wrote this beautiful song from the perspective of the guy, just like longing <laughs> longing to not be on the ship anymore and to be back at home <laughs> with his lady. Hmm. Um, and so that's, that's where Oregon again comes from. And I'm going to do it on the, he does it on the guitar. And this is, so this is from Hobie and Dave. Oh, there's that. That's what's going on. Rolling out along the sound and past the lion's gate. We're headed north towards Kodiak and through the inside straight. We'll fish the gold halibut till our holes are full and then it's turn about into the sound for or again again this kind of life requires a man with the ocean in his brain and the will to face an open sea and drive in sheets of rain Sometimes a man must leave his wife for ninety days and more. And who's to say what's going on for those who stay ashore? It's not the 25 foot waves, no winds that get to me. For I was born along the strand, yes, and grew up on the sea. It's when we're just a few days out, and I'm wondering how she's been, that I want to turn this old tub around. Roar again, again Now lest you folks 
begin to think that I'm a worried man. I get along and I live my life and I do the best I can. And if by chance you should happen to pay a visit to my home, you just tell the lady who's living there I'm out here all alone. Just tell the lady who's living there I'm out here all alone. Oregon again, Hobie Kiter. So not perfectly rendered, but that's how it goes. What a, per- what a special song. Uh, that, isn't that beautiful? That's great. Hobie writes amazing songs. Mm. I mean, amazing songs. I just think he's brilliant. And uh, he he and Dave had a, like a very beautiful baritone voice and would sing with him. And Dave was an ex- exceptional auto harp player. So Dave would go between guitar and auto harp. And Hobie plays banjo and guitar. And... And yeah, they just had a they had a beautiful thing, and they and they were part of the original band Timberbound, which formed. So like the Timberbound songs were written by John and Kim Cunnick. Then John tragically passed away. He drove off the road right at the top of Miss Mountain, right near where my dad's dome is, <laughs> and uh, and he it was a, it was a really traumatic event in that community. Everybody is still forty five years later really tore up about it. This is in nineteen seventy six, and so Kim. John's wife, at like partially as part of her process to mourn, and also because it was something they had talked about before he died, she collected their songs in the songbook, the Timberbound songbook. And so Hobie wrote a fabulous song about uh, John called Trees, which is also on the album. And actually, Ben and I have recorded that, and it'll be on our new album that's coming out this year. Well, yeah, we have one more tune or song to yeah. do. And before we do that, where do people go in general to get all your stuff yeah or to get you to come to their stuff <laughs> yeah uh yeah etc and support the rhapsody project thank you yeah the the there's links to all of my different projects on my website which is joebanjo.net i thought net because you know oregon gillnetting yes you know what the heck <laughs> so joebanjo.net ba- Joe uh j-o-e spelled out and and the rhapsody project is the rhapsody project.org and that that'll get you that'll get you lots of places, um, and and yeah, and and f- you know follow me on the things. I'm I'm at Joe Banjo on Instagram. And you have um, I think a Patreon for the Rhapsody Project. If people thank you, yeah. If I, people check it out and they're like, I want to support this. Yeah, yeah. If you're willing to support the creation of a toolkit for cultural sustainability, basically, I'm trying to document and and then spread the model for that we've developed in in Seattle to other communities and that is kind of my mission. And so and and a piece of that is like doing a lot of the racial equity work that we were talking about earlier. Um that's an essential kind of plank in the platform. So yes. that the way the best way to do that is to, yeah to support me on Patreon. That's hugely helpful to me even if it's just like a dollar or 5 dollars a month like it's huge. And then you get access to like kind of my process as I'm developing these materials, you have the opportunity to give feedback and kind of like cuz I'm Fundamentally, the, the Rhapsody Project is about heritage and collaboration. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how can we get more deeply rooted in who we are in our heritage, especially important for white folks, but really important for all Americans. And then how do we get more um, collaborative in nature so that we are not fighting each other, we're working together. I was just uh, someone on traditional music today. Uh, uh, the, the Facebook, Facebook forum? The Facebook group, yeah. yeah. Um, 
said, is there, you know, sort of any, any hope for white people in America to like develop a, uh, an identity that's not based on stolen things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of what you're talking about. You're talking about a, a a multiracial ethnic identity. Yeah. Essentially, which is like, what is our, our local like thing? What what are we doing here? And how can we collaborate together, even though we don't look the same and have the same, uh, have all the same ethnic identities. What is our common identity? Yeah, and that's the so the fallacy of whiteness. Everybody's caught up in the skin color thing, and the thing is that you think that because your skin color is white that you don't have an ethnic identity. Yeah, that's the whole problem. Yeah. Everybody has ethnic identities. Yeah, because none of us are the product of one culture. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So so the way I put it on my Patreon page is like it's layers of heritage. You have the base layer, which is like your genetic heritage, right? That's just one layer. Then you have uh, the tradition, the, the the heritage you grew up in. So like, what is the culture that surrounded you, you yeah. know, surrounded us in, in Northwest Oregon? What is, what are the traditions you've been drawn to? You know, for me, it's, it's blues, it's black American music. Um, that's another layer of your heritage, right? It's not, you, you, I can't, I can't embrace black American culture or express it in the same way as a black person would, but I can still experience it and incorporate it into my identity. It's a part of me. Sure. Right. It's not the part of me that shows, but maybe some people hear it in what I do. Maybe some people just, you wouldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't part of you. Right. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's like acknowledge that you're, there are layers to your heritage. And if you want to get into it, like figure out, okay, where'd your people come from? What are the traditions that they set down to become white? And why don't you pick them back up? Why don't you just pick the parts of it that are good? Yes. Leave the colonialism behind. Yeah. But take the cool parts of their ethnic culture and and bring it into your life. Yeah. It's like so many white folks that I found who are scared. I feel like what they're scared of is erasure Mm -hmm. and being marginalized. And it's like, no, you're erasing your real identity <laughs> your real identities as you would yeah, put it yeah. yeah and uh it's this is about getting stuff yeah ultimately yeah. right right yeah yeah and, and you have identity. to give away something that you think is a big deal <laughs> yeah right yeah right yeah yeah and that is and that some some of that is privilege yes <laughs> which is toxic which and is to- all, yeah. yeah and um yeah well, right. or or in, until it is equally distributed, which it is very much not. Yes, it will remain toxic. Yeah, because the powerful always cling to their power. That's yeah. that's a human thing. Thanks so much. This is a delight to talk to you. And uh, yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I would love it if um, we could bring Tina on and just do single girl, married girl. Absolutely. Um, and by Tina, I mean Briar. Yes. Is Tina awake? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you can cut this, but yeah. this is Briar. She is grew up like me. Her dad worked in the paper mill, works in the paper mill. Uh, and so she and I are both product of the rural Pacific Northwest. Yes. And do you have anything you want to say about <laughs> stuff? Say one thing about stuff. One thing about stuff. <laughs> one thing about stuff is... What else do I say? Well, well you all t- collaborate t- together. T- right? Tell them about uh, our program we're developing together. Oh, the Blues Queens and Jazz Royalty. Okay. Yes, we're doing. My leash. We're doing a class. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we're doing a class. I, I started teaching at uh, summer summer festivals like the Augusta Heritage oh, yeah. Festival and at the Port Townsend Acoustic Blues Festival and this year at the. 
Puget Sound Guitar Workshop and I'm delivering this class which is a vocal class and in it I try to help people gain more confidence while teaching them about the history of the blues through the blues queens and jazz royalties so it's a lot of uh, black female artists from like the 1920s and 30s and I guess before and after I just that's how that's that's what the class that we're developing is right on yeah yeah I can't wait to hear more yeah <laughs> yeah cool and uh, so not a not a blues queen but now a considered country royalty the Carter family yes yeah <laughs> we cover the waterfront yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ben Hunter and Joe Siemens are performing March 7th at Dusty Strings in Seattle. You can find their music at benjomusic.com and follow their Instagram at benjomusic. The Rhapsody Project is launching a new chapter in Richmond, Virginia this year, and they're celebrating April 11th at The Camel in Richmond with Phil Wiggins, Justin Golden, Andrew Ali, Joe, and a brand new trio billed as Teeth, composed of Sarah Gebermichael, I hope I pronounced that name correctly, Yaya, and Briar. You can learn more about The Rhapsody Project by visiting therhapsodyproject.org, and you can sign up to support The Rhapsody Project on Patreon. Make sure to follow Joe Siemens on Instagram, at Joe Banjo, and visit his website, joebanjo.net. If you're interested in Briar's Blues Queens and Jazz Royalty class, check out the link in the show notes. You can support Get Up in the Cool at patreon.com slash getupinthecool, and you can buy a t-shirt or a bag or phone case by following the link in this episode's show notes. Make sure to like and follow Get Up in the Cool on Facebook so you can see the video I posted from this episode and share it with the world. And in case you forgot everything I just told you, it's all linked in this episode's show notes on your podcast app. Just tap and swipe, go into a fugue state, 
and wake up with a bunch of cool merch and albums. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to get up in the cool.